Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the LSC. Um, this event uh, this afternoon is part of the LSC's uh, research festival, uh, New World Disorders, which has been taking place since Monday and continues until tomorrow. So do check uh, our website and find out more about the events we're um, hosting. Uh, this is all part of LSE's commitment to uh, explore how social science can tackle global issues. And it's also part of our commitment to uh, engage with the public and bring as possible, uh, as, as much as possible, a wider audience to the school. Uh, I am uh, Sandra Dravcelovic, and I'm a professor of social psychology here in the school, in the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science, and I'm very pleased to be here this afternoon to welcome uh, Professor Robert Eagleston and Professor Lindsay Stonebridge to, for today's event. Robert Robert Eagleston is a professor of contemporary literature and thought at Royal Holloway, University of London, and Lindsay Stonebridge is professor of humanities and human rights at the Department of English Literature at the University of Birmingham. For those of you who are keen on tweeting, the hashtags for today's event uh, New World Disorders and LSE Festival. I would ask you, however, to put your phones in silent, on silent so as not to disrupt the event. This event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Now, to our problem this afternoon. Hannah Arendt uh, was not only one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. She was also a woman uh, who felt with full force the predicament of the 20th century. It was the 20th century that shaped her biography, and it was the 20th century that triggered her philosophy and her thinking in general. She was a German-Jewish intellectual, quite likely in the worst possible historical period to be such a person the first half of the 20th century. She had to leave her country, running away from the Nazis, experience the betrayal of friends, lover, exile, learn how to speak, write, and love in a second language. She eventually became a refugee and wrote movingly, quite furiously, actually, and very profoundly about all these experiences. She settled in the United States, and it was there that she produced her seminal study on the origins, on the preconditions, actually, for and rise of totalitarianism in the first half of the 20th century, which has some chilling resonances with the world we live today. She dedicated herself to understanding what she considered to be its terrifying and devastating originality. For Hannah Arendt, there was something fundamentally new about totalitarianism. 
uh, it was unprecedented and it could not be anchored in any of the political systems humans knew so far. We have nothing to fall back on, she wrote, in order to understand a phenomenon that nevertheless confronts us with its overpowering reality and breaks down all the standards we knew. So when reality and its disorders explode everything we know and challenge our capacity to comprehend, what is left, she insisted, is our capacity to think. It is to put ourselves in that space of dialogue between me and myself in companionship with my fellow human beings and try to make sense of what's going on. Even if we do not have a banister, the metaphor she used to think about thinking itself, this heavy burden of going up and down stairs without having banisters to hold oneself to. So our event today asks, how aren't thinking and the origins of totalitarianism in particular can help us to make sense of our present and its orders and disorders now? How can her analysis help us to understand the state of global politics today? That's what we're going to be talking about. As usual, after the conversation, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to our speakers, but now will you please join me in welcoming both Professor Eagleston and Professor Stonebridge to the LSC and to our event this afternoon. Hi, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to start by uh, talking quite quickly and briefly about her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. It was the book that sort of made her career. It's the book that uh, embodies crucial elements of her thought. Uh, later, Hannah Arendt wrote that uh, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. Um, and just as you said, part of the, the origins of totalitarianism, it's not a straightforward history book that's explaining how things happen, A, B, C, D, E. It's more, uh, as you said, the conditions for it or, or the genesis of it or, or what totalitarianism really kind of is. Uh, and the book is, is in three parts as she addresses two of the, she, she says there are three preconditions or three things that have shaped what happened in the 20th century. She talks about uh, empire, about anti-Semitism, um, and about the condition of, of life in Europe. Okay, so why, she said, the first section, why um, imperialism? Why did imperialism, what's that got to do with the, the rise of the Nazi movements, the rise of Stalinist totalitarianism? She's She's pretty clear that imperialism and colonialism is a bad thing. She said, why did, why did the European powers allow this evil to spread until everything was destroyed? And she gives various reasons. First, constant expansion. Imperialism is about constant expansion. Ro uh, Rhodes said, um, I would annex the stars if I could. Um, and of course, uh, the constant expansion goes hand in hand with capitalism okay so imperialism is, is a strange allegiance between what she calls the mob uh, and capital second imperialism uh, created a, a strange 
Uh, well, strange ideas about race. So Hannah Arendt distinguishes between what she calls race thinking, which to speak very quickly and roughly is a kind of awareness of, of what we might call racial difference, to racism. Okay, it's what Foucault calls the ontologizing of race, which is, involves uh, a sense of uh, superiority, which she thinks is a justification for the exploitation of colonialism. But this creation of racism led both, she says, to the alignment uh, in the European powers, especially of domestic and foreign policy, and the creation of what she calls pan movements, pan Slavs, for example, or Nazi Volkish movement, because these make uh, concrete. Uh, racialized forms of national identity. Okay, so when I'm explaining this to my literature students, I always talk to, I talk to them about Shakespeare's Othello. So in Shakespeare's Othello, the, the Moor of Venice, they recognize, the Venetians recognize that Othello um, is different from them, but not inferior or superior. But that's very different then from the kind of 19th century race, racism that Hannah Arendt is analyzing. And her, her key idea, really, is that um, the, the racism of empire allows a kind of systematic and, indeed, personal brutality uh, and the creation of a racialized national identity because all the things that happen in the empire, she says, boomerang back, boomerang back to Europe. Okay? So all these things come back to Europe and haunt Europe, and that's... Imperialism is one of the preconditions of totalitarianism. And then she writes a lot about, uh, she writes about anti-Semitism. She says, um, in the 20th century, the Jewish question, which she says is relatively unimportant in terms of world politics, was thrown into the storm center of events. And she says that uh, anti-Semitism had grown uh, an entirely unexpected virulence away from sight. She means that through the 19th century, um, and she's not entirely right about this, but she means it, it grew in the work of crackpots and nutters and uh, generally very offensive people, and slowly grew and became, she says, a catalytic agent for other events. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So the anti-Semitism is a catalytic agent, uh, and imperialism. And to this comes her, her third precondition, which she says the, 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 state of, the state of Europe in modernity, really. The, the breakdown of older structures, the turning of Europe into a, a people into a, a, lonely, a lonely and atomized wasteland, she says, where people are not connected to each other or to the state. Because totalitarianism is interested in the masses and not the classes. A class or a party represents interest, represents a, a unified group of people. Totalitarianism interested in the masses. And she sees the breakdown of the, the, of the class, class system, the breakdown of parties, and instead a great unorganized structureless mass of furious individuals who had nothing in common except the belief that parties were corrupt that the most respected, articulate, and representative members of the community, the experts, I guess, were fools. People had enough of experts. And the powers that we were, powers that be were evil and fraudulent. So whereas parties had represented sectional interests, the, the working class or what have you, populists, uh, populists and totalitarians claim to trump all that because they represent the people or the will of the people or the vogue 
uh, over particular interests. So totalitarians claim to be beyond politics, and that's why, incidentally, why people who uh, talk about uh, the will of the people or, or the masses uh, or getting beyond politics should make us feel slightly anxious. Okay, they're speaking for for a mass, for a vogue. Um, and from that, she discovered her, her first key idea. So totalitarianism arises with a strong man and with what she calls ideology. Of course, ideology is one of the most debated kind of terms. I'll tell you what she means by it. What she means is an ideology starts off with a, a first principle. So, for example, for uh, the Soviet Union, the first principle is, is the party is always right. In Nazi Germany, that the, we must work towards the Fuhrer. Okay, so we start with this first principle. And this first principle then explains, or rolling out in a perfectly natural process, this first principle explains everything. Everything that happens in the world is explained by this first principle. So dedicated members of these movements um, can't be reached by argument. They totally identify with the movement. And she says their ability to tell what's true and false is destroyed. She means the faculty of judgment is destroyed. And she has some very interesting examples. For example, in the 30s, she cites one of the Stalinist show trials. Somebody in a factory is accused of being a saboteur. Okay? And he says to himself, well, well I, I don't think I am a saboteur. I don't remember sabotaging the machines. But, but the party is always right. And if the party is always right and says I'm a saboteur, I must be a saboteur in some way unknown to myself. Okay, so even his own experience no longer pertains judgment on the world. And this, she says, discovers the, the, the rule from within, the way in which under totalitarianism we kind of control or totalitarianize ourselves. And then she has one more crucial thing that she discovers, and I'll pass over to Lindsay. One more crucial thing she discovers, the role of terror. So from Aristotle, Arendt takes the idea that human beings are both uh, zoe, are both animals, okay, and bios, our, our, our culture. We have names and jobs and things to do. And she discovers in totalitarianism, our bios, our cultural identity, our legal rights, if you like, can be stripped away from us, leaving us just our kind of animal, just our meat, if you like. And once that's happened, we are, she says, superfluous. Okay, we don't worry about killing flies, particularly that they have no culture, they have no rights. Okay, and that's what happens to human beings. So once in power, totalitarian regimes are able to split the, the human being from their, uh, their cultural and cultured self, their names and identities, into their animal selves, and use that split to impose terror. <laughs> Thanks. Can you all hear me if I talk at this? You will have to speak here okay. because of the podcast. Okay. If you don't mind. Wave if you can't. Thank you, Bob, by leaving me with the word terror. <laughs> um, Hannah Arendt uh, was an illegal immigrant. Those are her words. She says, I was an illegal immigrant and a stateless person for 18 years of her life. Um, I'm going to dwell on that for a little bit as a way into talking about the origins of totalitarianism. She left Germany in 1933. Um, she was caught um, in, in the library, as you know, a lot of us are, <laughs> um, researching um, 
anti-Semitic propaganda in the, archive, in the Prussian archives, and she was looking... It's the kind of work that lots of our graduates are doing today. She's looking at the evidence of racism in policy documents, NGO documents, etc. She was caught. She charmed her way. Uh, the, guy, she, the guy who caught her was um, only a junior SSS. He'd only just got his job. He didn't quite know what he was doing, and he was very charmed by her, let her go. And she escaped with her mother over the Czech border on the Green Line, and she escaped through a safe house. The front door of this house was in Germany. Um, you went in, you had dinner, you left by the back door, which was in Czechoslovakia. Um, and at that moment, she later said, I stepped into statelessness. She then went uh, very eventually to Paris, where she stayed with the refugee and um, immigrant community in the 13th arrondissement. In 1940, she was rounded up with all um, German, alien, and Jewish um, women under, under, under the French government um, and sent to Gers camp, which is in southwest France, just by the Pyrenees. That camp started life as a refugee camp. It was a camp for um, Spanish refugees. Um, in the Civil War. It was turned into a, a detention camp for any um, undesirable aliens in the beginning of the war. When the Germans occupied, Arendt and about 30 other women took advantage of the situation and escaped in the chaos. A lot of the other women stayed because they wanted to make sure their families could find them. They all died. They all went to Auschwitz. Um, there's a lovely story by um, Lisa Fitko, who was a people runner. Lisa Fitko used to run people over the Pyrenees. She used to take them over that walk. Oh, it's a climb. I've done it. It's a climb. Um, and she, came, she describes coming across Hannah Arendt walking around a field reading a book in 1940. <laughs> and she was saying, well, Hannah, what are you doing? And Hannah said, I'm just thinking. I'm just having a think, you know, as you do in a major crisis. She eventually escaped um, by getting papers via uh, Marseille and then um, via Lisbon to the U.S. Why does that matter? Just before she died, Hannah Arendt said to one of her former students, Jerome Cohn, she said, the story of refugees in the 20th century has not been told sufficiently. It has not been told, and I fear we're going to suffer from it. And how right she was. So her analysis of why refugeedom and statelessness matters to bad politics is crucial. And going back to your question, Sandra, why is Anna Arendt relevant now? I think... If, if she was sitting here now and we were going to say, tell us about your time, how can you help Anna? She'd say, think, think of yourself. Yeah. Don't look for analogies. If you look for analogies, you're going to get stuck. You're going to get lost. But I'll tell you one thing, she would have said, um, is the connection between statelessness, rightlessness, refugees, and fascist politics is intimate. Mm. And that is where she'd start from. So going back to the origins of totalitarianism, I always think it's very interesting. Uh, the, the, one of the titles for that book was The Burden of Shame. It was the first title that she had. And it was her publisher who changed, changed it. I think that's very interesting. And she wrote the first two bits, most of them, on anti-Semitism and imperialism before 1946. So she's, she, was, she was really, you know, you, next time you complain about a deadline, or I need space to think. Next time you're complaining that Brexit means you can't do any thinking. Remember, first two, first two you know, chapters of uh, Origins. But she also wrote, the, the key chapter for me is a chapter called The Decline of the Nation State and the Ends of the Rights of Man. She first published in 1949, one year after the formation of the State of Israel, and that's not coincidental. 
Now, half of that is about the decline of the nation-state. And what does Arendt mean? Arendt really liked political systems and political structures. She was not going to complain. She believed we needed organisations to have political life, and she wasn't going to complain about that. Why had the European Westphalian nation-state failed? It had failed basically because it had been taken over by nationalism, capitalism, and colonialism. So the function of the state, which is to protect its citizens, had collapsed under the weight of racism. And so what she said, why that was really, really dangerous, what that meant is that big, big claim that you had in the 18th century for the rights of man collapsed. Now, of course, as Bob said, and as Arendt knew, um, other places in the world well knew that the rights of man was a bit of a joke. Um, The rights of man were only ever as good as whatever country or politics would hold you up. But this time, as Bob said, it was Europe and the West's turn to discover that what we called the rights of men were in fact the rights of political citizens and only the rights of political citizens. So when in the Nuremberg Laws Jewish people were de-citizened from the Reich, what happened at that point is they became mere humanity. They, they, They lost their political rights, they lost their civil rights, There was no human rights national system at that point. They became merely human, merely human. And Arendt was always very, very sceptical about human rights or natural rights. Rights would not stick to people like um, sticky paper. Um, You always had to fight for rights politically. She said, well, why was that a disaster? At the moment you became merely human, The the moment you were just a human being, you had no country, you had no polity, you had no civil society, then you are at your most rightless. So she says very clearly, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Um, And that was her analysis. And she said it's one short step from statelessness to genocide. Um, Other people have made that connection since then. but you know, Arendt, I think, was uh, the first. Well, with Karl, with uh, Schmidt, but Schmidt kind of thought that was a good thing. Um, Arendt, less so. So that, that, to me, is her real legacy. What do we do with that? I mean, she said quite clearly she did not think that the new human rights regime would patch it together. She understood. She was a real criti- critic of sovereignty, any type of sovereignty. Any time you do politics in the name of something else, be it the people, be it the state, be it ideology, you will commit a form of violence. So what she saw the UN doing and the new, the new kind of human rights regime that followed that moment, she said, well, that's still sovereignty. That's sovereignty shared between powerful states. Um, and a lot of, you know, once we get to Bandung and once we get to decolonization, lots of people are very quick to realize that's exactly what it was. Um, that is not going to fix it. What it, and you're not going to be able to fix this by magically reanimating a notion of rights. Just sitting there going, they're human beings too, everyone should have rights, is not going to work. So what she talked about at the end of that um, um, chapter is what she called enigmatically the right to have rights. And she develops this a bit more elsewhere in her work, although she never really fully develops this. And what she means is you need to strive for politics not that gives you, you know, rights for everything, but, but gives you a place in which you can speak and be heard and have political access. That is what she called the right to have rights. We're only, we aren't born in the world with natural rights, Arendt thought. Theologians think differently, but Arendt didn't think that. 
it's human activity, it's human action that gives us all each other's rights. That's what needs negotiating. So the model of the polity she came up with in the end, she didn't, she didn't really um, you know, get there in the end. She wanted a kind of federalist, binational, um, non-nation state, non-sovereign type of polity. But the one principle she did um, think was terribly, terribly important was the right to be disobedient. She was a great fan of the notion of isonomia, which is, again, borrowed from Herodotus. And, and unlike the kind of political system that we've inherited, which depends on representation, we do politics by being represented, or we don't do politics by being represented, as is the case in Britain now. Um, but ideally, we do politics by being represented. Arendt never thought that would work. She said, what do we need is a politics that has the ability for disobedience built into it. You, you, you have to be able to act um, in the name of equal liberty. We have to be able to take action in the name of equal liberty. So I don't think we're in a new totalitarian age. I'm not enough of a social scientist to be able to patch that together. I don't think the fascism, I think the fascism we're looking at now is a fascism, but I think it's a second or third degree fascism. Um, I, I'm very wary about calling um, Trump um, a, a new totalitarian. I don't think that's what's going on at all. But I think where Arendt was right and where we ought to concentrate our politics is on that issue of what happens when you're pushed out of the nation state. That is not a refugee crisis. That is a crisis in the meanings of the name of political and civil citizenship. That is our political crisis. It's not just other people's. So that's my... That's my Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob and Lindsay, for a very, um, uh, very pertinent, very thoughtful uh, introductions. Uh, we are going to take another five minutes, perhaps, seven minutes, uh, before we open... Uh, to questions from the public to give you the opportunity to react uh, to each other to what you have said and um, uh, and we'll proceed from there so do you want to have a second go Bob uh, I, 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 I tips well I'm introduced that you think that, um, that Trump and Son are not totalitarian so I might mm. ask you about that at the end of Origins of Totalitarianism, um, she, has a, she, she says that, um, that's it's a long quotation, I'm not going to read it all, but the uh, dangers of the corpse factories and holes of oblivion uh, is that today, with populations and homelessness ever on the increase, masses that are, constant, masses that are continuously rendered superfluous if we continue to think of our, word, our world in utilitarian terms. Political, social, economic events are everywhere in a silent conspiracy with totalitarian instruments devised for making men superfluous. And then she says totalitarian solutions may well survive the fall of totalitarian regimes. So I, I think I, I, I agree with your final point to some extent. I mean, I, 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 again, I'm not a social scientist. Uh, I don't think, uh, I'm not sure how useful it is to say, oh, Trump is a fascist or. Mm. Um, but, but there are clearly what she calls totalitarian solutions floating around, which may or may not go with totalitarian regimes. Mm. Uh, and it seems that's one of the things I take from the origins, is that when you, when you read it, particularly the third section, all sorts of things um, leap out in a, in a... I teach a course on Brexit, so in a Brexity kind of way, for example, thinking about experts or thinking about... The, the elite and the mob and all these kinds of things swirl together. 
So it may not be totalitarian, but totalitarian solutions? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. There are, she says there are elements of totalitarianism that survive. Um, the reason I don't think we're in a totalitarian situation is because we still have rule of law, just. And, and but we also have an awful lot of lawyers. <laughs> um, and, you know, okay, um, that, that could go, but I don't see that. I, th- I think the violence is happening elsewhere at the moment, and I think it's more insidious, and that's why we're not understanding it. At the end of... Um, she rewrote that conclusion to Origins of Totalitarianism and talked about ideology. Um, and she says... One of the things, she's, I hadn't realised that she'd been teaching George Orwell's 1984 to Berkeley students um, in 1955. Mm. And she has this great opening line to her Berkeley students, which is, I'm going to teach you about European totalitarianism. Don't empathise with me. Because <laughs> you guys know nothing. <laughs> but listen and read. And what she took from Orwell, on the one level, is she agreed. She said, totalitarianism um, works because it's a mind system. Um, and she also agreed with him that I think they had a very similar analysis as why that works so powerfully is because of alienation. And that's where I think um, our fake news culture gets very, very important. She wrote a very great paper just after the Pentagon paper on lying on politics, and basically she said, I don't know why you were surprised. People have been lying in politics forever. I mean, this is not news. <laughs> what do you think politics is? Um, that's not dangerous. Um, that's what politicians do. What's dangerous is a manufacture of uh, a situation where no one knows what's a lie and what's true anymore. Yeah. Because then you lose a kind of community of fact or community of truth. Uh, and so there's a quote that's often tweeted at the moment is, you know, the ideal subject of totalitarianism is not the idiot. It's, the, it, it's not someone who's willingly duped. It's, someone, it's when you can't tell what's real and what's fake anymore. And people like Trump and Putin and others love that because they know it creates a situation of insecurity. And she talks very movingly, and I think Orwell's very good on this too, on the loneliness that follows from that. And I think a lot of people experience that now. It's like, who knows what the hell is going on? And then you retreat into yourself. And lonely people are easy to manipulate. Yeah. And that's when Facebook and things like that become really quite interesting. Can I follow that with a question to both of you? And then uh, the problem of uh, the difference between truth and fiction, I think one of the things that was very central for Arendt's interpret- uh, analysis of totalitarianism was what she called the construction of an entirely fictitious world. Yeah. She, for her, totalitarianism had to rest on a fiction. And the real question was why would people buy into that fiction? And she demonstrated brilliantly that buying into that fiction took a lot of organization through bureaucracy and specific institutional arrangements of a certain kind, but it also took a mindset, Mm. as you said. It, It took a total abdication of the capacity for thinking for, with oneself, for thinking oneself. So you delegate the activity and the burden of thinking to a party, to a friend, to, mm-hmm. to, a, to, a, to whoever, you know, and you don't think for yourself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, how we can think in terms of what we experience today, to which extent the activity of thinking itself, and because we started with thinking, 
perhaps I will, I will ask you just to respond to this problem of thinking itself, thinking without a banister, mm -hmm. being able to think, carrying the burden that thinking mm -hmm. involves, uh, uh, is our only defense against buying into these fictitious, fictitious worlds that are built for us mm -hmm. by ideologies or powerful leaders or uh, politics of a certain kind you know, that could or could not become totalitarianism, but that shows or resembles elements mm. of what she described. Mm. Yeah, so I, I have two, two things to say about that. The first is that um, as you talked about propaganda, the point of propaganda uh, for Arendt was to, to sort of show power, not to be true but to show power, and to abolish the difference between truth and falsity, and so abolish reality, and so abolish shared reality, and people's ability thus to think. Uh, and this also underlies uh, the thing that was a sort of scandalous success, her book on Eichmann, on the banality of evil. Uh, and she says in that book that um, uh, one, that Eichmann is a tiny little man, and he speaks in cliches, and he's all kind of, he can't think, he's all kind of confused, and lots of people read that as her being kind of snotty, as a one German intellectual being snotty to, a, to a, a, a lower class German who'd been lucky in his career, as it were. But, but in fact, underlying that is the much more important. The fact that Eichmann can only speak in cliches and can't think and can't exercise his own judgment and has, as it were, uh, completely swallowed the Nazi ideology. He can't even think outside it. It means that literally Eichmann can't think and because he can't think, he is open to evil, open to what she calls the banality of evil. And by banality, she means the, the, the sort of mundanity, the way in which uh, evil, uh, terrible things become made every day, they become part of bureaucracy, they become all kinds of stuff, and we don't even notice we're doing them. We're completely swamped, we don't think. And that's what underlies, exactly as you say, the, the need to, to constantly think. And underneath that, lies I think she takes from Plato um, is that Plato says that, um, or she says that Plato says, thinking is that conversation with ourselves. So thinking is always the, the two in one. Yeah, and when we think, we talk to ourselves, that can be these two people inside us, and that sort of conversation is the profoundly grounding, she's not so grand as to claim it's a sort of ethical system or anything like that, but that sense is, a, is, is what grounds in a way, her thinking going back. Yeah, no, it is crucial. I would like to go back to Eichmann. Um, so I do think that is of her time, of our time, too. Because it's not just not thinking. I, I mean, I've been struck with both Brexit and Trump, how easy it is. I spend too much time on Twitter. I have a really bad Twitter Ooh. habit. And Twitter is basically at the moment people going, you're stupid, no, you're stupid, no, you're stupid. Um, no one's really thinking, and we all use the same words. And that's what, I did write a piece about this, and I got accused of calling um, Brexiteers being like Eichmann, but I wasn't saying that. You can imagine what, what my mailbag was like. But what she said was, the thing about Eichmann is he's sort of driven for a bureaucratic system that is solution-driven, which is where we are very much. I mean, those policy people in the room will recognise this. And the way he spoke was just in cliches. And he's like, you know, being at one of those meetings and someone who, you know, we could swallow the Kool-Aid, and you're thinking, at one point, I do not know what you're talking about. I have no idea. And they think, oh, we're talking about students. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or whatever. Or you'll listen. I remember, I remember one of the Home Office a couple of years ago deciding that they wouldn't help. They were blocking the Dubs Amendment 
um, to save children's lives, and you're sitting there going, okay, <laughs> run me through that. Yeah, we don't want to encourage them to risk their lives. And this is the kind of thing she was talking about. And she says quite clearly at one point in the Eichmann book and later in a couple of essays, it's the difference with Eichmann. It's unlike if you were going to be murdered, it's much better to be murdered by Richard III. Because Richard III at least has soliloquies, a great opening soliloquy to Richard III. Now, shall I prove myself a villain? Yes, yes, I will. So he actually bloody thinks about it you know, and decides to do it. That's... Deep evil, that's proper evil. Eichmann, you know, he comes home and there's nobody checking. And I think on all sides of political debates, we're running into that now. The words stick, you know, the words trip out, but actually what they mean doesn't trip out. So people will talk about, you know, let's work on protracted displacement. What they mean is statelessness and existential despair of bad toilets for the rest of your life. That's what they mean. Um, so, and I think we're very, very much still in that zone. The problem with Arendt and our problem too is she can never get from, okay, so we can think. And the other thing she says, which really I found very useful and also tough over the last two years, is that doesn't mean confirming your own bias. You have to think a reality that you don't like. So just sitting there going, Brexit is wrong and Trump is nasty, is not thinking. That's just feeling sad and angry. Um, Actually, coming to grips with, it, with, the, with the idea that you share a country with a lot of people who don't share your values, that's a reality. And that, and that is really, really tough. And she says the problem with that is you don't want to retreat into your own mind or your own Twitter feed um, and retreat from the world. And that inner immigration, she calls it. And she's never quite sure about how we can bring our thinking into the world together without violence. And I think that we're still at that problem. Um, yes, great. Thank you. So let's now uh, take questions from the public. Uh, there is a question here. Okay, and then over there. Oh. Okay, so let's take... I'm going to take one from here. Well, there is one here, there, and there. And I think that will be it. So please, can I ask you to be brief to the point? And we'll take two questions at a time. Thank you. Thank you for a brilliant analysis. Um, my question is that I kind of want to bring the discussion to the idea of governance in fostering totalitarianism. Uh, Arendt talked about the, the um, concept of policing and how policing with terror is one of the mechanisms to ensure um, the use or the um, totalitarian regime. Um, I want to talk about like technology today, especially technology such as like mass Absolutely. surveillance and um, AI power censorship that censored freedom of speech of the people. And in light of these powerful technology, what would be some of the um, solution or like in her word of us thinking actively, like how can we do that? Thank you. So that's a question on surveillance technology and policing, which was very central. Uh, there was a question here. Um, thank you so much. Um, my name is Mayis Redwoods. I'm a PhD student at King's in International Relations. Um, my question is about Brazil. Um, I'm half <laughs> Brazilian, but I grew up here. And obviously being a witness to to what is happening in Brazil right now is, is very upsetting and I'm going in September for my second year of my doctorate 
And I wanted to know what you think may possibly happen, especially when you think that only five days ago the Brazilian Minister for Education was almost advocating having school children pledge allegiance to the flag in a very non-American kind of way, but also very intensely similar and, and having the slogan, you know, Brazil above everything, God above everyone, and using that as a kind of tie. Um, it's very confusing and it's very worrying, and I wanted to know your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, so the problem of nationalism, I think, and um, so do you guys want to bring? I will ask you? perhaps one of you to bring. Uh, because we have so two more I'm, questions, and I'm trying I'm, to get them. I'm not half Brazilian, but I am named after a Brazilian. Uh, my first name. Uh, What's your first name? Robert. After Roberto. Roberto. But who who was who left the country after the, the coup in the early sixties? Um, so I don't know what's going to happen in Brazil. I, I think when they take Paulo Freire's books out of the library and get burn them, that's probably quite a bad sign. Um, I, I do think, though, that, that um, we talked about reality. So one of the things that Harrant's signs of hope is that when um, totalitarian regimes eventually crash into reality, okay, that's what brings them down in the end. So, so in a sense, the more, the more, uh, the more bizarre they get, okay, uh, and the more the truth and falsity don't matter, the more reality is dissolved by the regime, the more kind of reality is waiting to come bite them. So that's kind of that's her, one of her sort of vectors of hope, I suppose. Yeah. And about AI uh, policing and surveillance, I don't know what I don't know what she w would say or think about it. I I, I suppose that the, the the turning human beings into numbers and figures is a bad is a bad thing if it's going to be used to do to create the terror that Lindsay and I were discussing. Um, but again, as it, you know, there has to be there has to be <coughs> policing, uh, and it, it says it's the issue of, of of rights. The right to have rights seems to underlie that. Lindsay, perhaps you. Mm. Mm. No, they're both really great questions. You probably have done more work on this um, than any of us here. But I was thinking as you were talking on technology, in some ways, Arendt would have said, "Well, plus ça change," because this is what nation-state bureaucracy brings with it. I mean, you're thinking of you know the. Um, Paris had the greatest number of migrants in the 1920s in any, anywhere else in Europe for lots of different reasons. And they also had the first card index system. There are photographs of it um, where everyone was documented. And they were really proud of it. And um, you had to have sort of big ladders with wheels to go and get it. Also meant why when the um, Nazis invaded, so many people were rounded up so quickly. They knew exactly where to find them. And so, I mean, Arendt, I think it's the beginning, um, maybe it's the beginning of human condition. She says, ours is perhaps the first century, and this is the 20th century, in which the speed of change in the thing, things of the world outstrips the change of its inhabitants. So it's actually the way that technology um, is moving much faster than the people on it. So that there's that kind of the times of change and the times of politics and the times of governance then. So I, I think she might say, yes, you've got to, you, you, you need more thinking and you need more work. And you need to be much more careful. But it's actually the same model that, that's mm. working mm. here, yeah. which might allow us to tackle it. Because, you know, that idea of a, it's everywhere, it's new, that, that was the same when it was card index systems and police force. So we need to kind of 
be less scared of it by saying, well, actually, we had policy over that. We're going to have policy over you guys, too. Um, going back to quickly to Brazil, yes, exactly what Bob said, but also I always think I love the stories of Arendt in the 50s and when well, the 60s and 70s, although she was changed about this. She really loved her student. She really liked the student um, movement. Um, she, you know, she said the thing about politics is you always have to create a space for the new people. Um, you always have to be you know, willing for that, what she called it, the miracle, the impossible miracle of freedom. Um, which means not hanging on to power. If you're you know, old and in power, it means making, 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 making movement. And I think actually my, if she looked now, I, and I do feel very cheerful about how furious most of my students are, um, and students across the world, and the work they're doing, and the organisation they're doing, and the journalism they're doing, and the risks they're taking. So over to you. <laughs> um, um, there was a question there, um, and then a question there. We'll take this too, and then if we have. No, it was there. Yes, uh, yes. That was uh, a hand I saw very early on, so the person. Hi. Uh, thank you both for a really great description of a very complicated book and theory. Um, I guess I wanted to ask... Uh, in parts of the book, uh, in the way that Arendt describes the, the use of bureaucracy is that it's kind of a way of um, hiding power. It's, it's hard to tell which secret police organization actually is in charge right now. Um, and that's part of where the confusion of both citizens and victims happens. Um, and of course, there are different ways to make power visible. Um, that's that's part of the value of like protests and and opposition is that it forces something power to appear, um, but still in in her historical time there was still power located in the party in a particular figure, and it seems like if there's any difference now it's that there isn't something analogous to that. So I don't know if you would agree with that or how do we make powerful power visible now? Where would we find it? Thank you. And then on the other side, please. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, Arend and similarly um, Adorno have uh, written extensively about um, education after Auschwitz, as he calls it. Um, how do you think... Um, education today um, has to change um, in light of fake news and people's unwillingness to think for themselves uh, to make to tackle uh, fake news and the further rise of totalitarianism um, I think you're right <laughs> but I was also one of um, Arendt's and Adorno's good friends was, of course, Walter Benjamin. And she, they were friends in Paris. And she was the one who took his thesis on the philosophy of history, his last paper. Um, he, he gave it to her. He didn't make it across the border. He committed suicide when he wasn't allowed into, into Spain. But Arendt did take that. And I'm always struck, as you were talking, the thing about bureaucracy, Benjamin has this, he kind of criticizes that kind of Hegelian historical materialism that says we will always find a historical agent 
You see, it's like playing a, like a game of chess where you all think it's logical, there's this beautiful knowledge coming on. But actually there's someone sitting underneath, you know, making the moves for you, and there's this little gnome, this little um, creature. Um, I think it's good not to be able to call out one agent because I think that that's about complexity and we have to find a politics that's capable of responding to complexity and holding complexity, which means that means you, you, you know, you've got to get out of the habit of having politics as heroes and villains because um, that's not going to work. That's hard. Um, so that's what I'd say about that. I, I could say a lot about education. <laughs> Bob, do you want to say? Well, I might answer the educational question and to answer what Lindsay said and also to Brazil. So I, I'm, I'm a... Uh, Carla Freire is a fantastic, uh, exemplary Brazilian educator, wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, and in that, he talks about changing from a, the banking model of education, in which uh, information is kind of banked and banked deposited in people's heads, to a dialogic model in which people talk and they bring their own experiences and understandings to education. And, and although this book was published in the 68, it's even more relevant now because, of course, when you, when you, no one needs to know the dates of Hannah Arendt, you can look them up on Wikipedia. No one needs to discuss the information that you might have to have banked in your head. It's all in your phone. But the, the, that sense of dialogue and talking and responding and bringing yourself to learning and, and to teaching is a completely different matter. And that builds and helps exactly that sense of judgment, that way of thinking about reality, that way of thinking about power structures and agency, that's exactly what it, it builds. So, so uh, in question how we do do with fake news and Twitter, it's learning, it's learning to have your own responsibility and learning to have your own judgment, which seems to be the way of engaging and dealing with it. And what that means also is, is that the thinking we talked about, but also understanding the, the shared reality of the world rather than the fake reality that the totalitarian-esque kind of people want us to believe. I would add that I think it does come back um, to politics. I mean, Arendt, one of the first things she did when she was in New York was write about Kafka, um, which is very interesting to, to me as a literary scholar as well as a um, theorist. And Kafka, she would talk about the job holders, the person who's just defined by their function in a functional society. Um, and the kind of education, you only have the education system that's as good as your polity. So, I mean, a lot of us in this room who are over 50 would have been the benefits of a kind of welfareist model of education that said, we're going to breed citizens as well as job holders because we've just had a major war and we think it's quite good if people know how to behave as well as succeed. And that didn't last very long in, in the UK, but it was very good. Ditto, I mean, a lot of Europe had those systems. Um, that's now gone, and that's a reflection of the kind of politics. You know, education doesn't exist outside um, of, of a more general sense of what you want a community to be. And if all you want is a community of job holders and earners, this, you'll end up with the education system roughly, which is the one we've got. Um, so there is a, a question here now from the woman here. And then there was a question here. That if we have time, I'll come back. Thank you. Um, this is a bit personal, but two weeks ago, coming home from seeing if Beale Street could talk at the BFI crossing Hungerford Bridge and waiting for the number nine bus in front of Charing Cross Station, I got on my usual bus home, 10.30 at night, and a man on the bus started hollering at me 
first for being American. And then he began going on and on about how all the Jews should be killed, all the Jews should be shot. His sense of history was a bit off because he was saying that all the Jews were Nazis, but, um, <laughs> but that all the Jews should be shot. I was a little uncomfortable with this. Um, I'm a Jewish woman, but the, um, the people on the bus got angry at me because I expected the driver to do something about this, and in speaking to the driver, I was slowing down the bus, and the people on the bus got angry at me instead of saying something to him or, or doing anything. The driver, when I started actually name-dropping people I know in London Transport, got the guy off the bus finally. And he, um, it, you know, it's become a police thing. I did report it. It was an anti-Semitic. It was a hate crime. But it's thrown me because of the response of the other people on the bus. And so talking about Hannah Arendt and, and all of that has it just, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I, there was a question from the gentleman here in, uh, with a blue Sorry, white shirt, right here. Yeah. Yes. yes, mine is about two issues mentioned earlier in terms of quotes. Uh, the notion of sovereignty in terms of reanimating the notion of rights. Could you elaborate a little more in terms of the other idea of ideology as a s silent conspiracy? Okay, thank you. So I'm going to ask um, you guys to respond. Yeah. I'm sorry about the because we will have to. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking two at a time. Okay. Um, if you respond, I'm sorry, can I just talking. respond to the woman yes. in front? Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's awful. Um, and I think, yeah, um, I I'd never experienced anti-Semitism in Britain myself personally until the last 18 months and a lot of people in the Jewish community are like you thrown by it. I remember a friend of mine the day after Brexit saying they don't want us anymore and I said it was so stupid and I don't think she was so stupid um, and that actually goes back to you know Arendt's point on anti-Semitism um, which was complicated because of her critique of Israel and complicated because it was Arendt but her mother once told her she said, you know, um, she said at school, she said, if, if, you, if, you, if you meet racism in the playground, you deal with it, you fight. If you're attacked as a Jew, you fight back as a Jew. And I think in, in loads of kinds of racism, that kind of works. If you're attacked because of who you are, you fight back in the name of who you are. At the same time, Arendt would also say, um, you know, I, 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 she, well, she wouldn't identify as Jewish in a simplistic way, but she would always come out fighting. Um, I'm not quite sure I, I understand your question, so I'm going to let Bob um, rephrase it, and then I'm going to try and understand your question. Mm. I'm also very sorry that happened to you. I think that's a disgusting thing to happen. Uh, in terms of your question, the invis invisibility of ideology, I, I think one of the things for Arendt is, is that ideology is, is constantly on, on display precisely because it is, it's, it's the key idea that the party is always right or we work towards the Fuhrer, that is shaping all the other ideas. And when she talks about ideology, she says that, you know, uh, like a logician, if you start off with the, all, all the ideas that come, if you believe the Fuhrer is right, we work towards the Fuhrer, then it's quite normal steps to work out all the other things you might want to do. It's just the first 
proposition is kind of wrong, if you see what I mean. And, and that's and that's and that's what goes on in totalitarian ideology. They tell you the first thing over and over and over and over again, and everything else kind of is perfectly natural. So they're not asking you to believe lots of mad and evil things, just like one mad and evil thing, and everything else kind of rolls from it. That so so it's kind of visible. I think it's the. Well, I know we have more people wanting to ask questions, and I'll, I'll have to say I'm very sorry, but we've run out of time. Uh, so I'm going to thank you all for having come in today, and I'll thank our speakers, and perhaps the conversation can continue a bit further here after we conclude the event. Thank you very much. Uh,